0: This is Episode 7 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at AngryTechNews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Benrose. There's a lot of security news this episode, and a little bit of political ranting at some very dumb people who think they understand technology just because they've been handed some authority. I have no apologies for this. I report on the stories that interest me, and that I think that you, the listener, should know about. In other words, I go wherever the news takes me, and then I beat it unconscious, and drag its limp body along behind me. From the security through not getting hacked department, a hacker has breached Argentinian government's IT network and stolen identity details for all of the country's 45 million. The database is called Renaper and it stands for Registro Nacional de las Personas, aka National Registry of Persons. Renaper is part of the Argentinian Interior Ministry, where it is primarily used for the issuance of government ID cards. But the database is also made available to all government agencies that feel they need citizens' personal information. The breach happened sometime last month, but the first public evidence surfaced last week when a newly registered Twitter account published ID card photos and personal details for 44 Argentinian celebrities, including President Alberto Fernandez. A day later, the hacker offered to sell details on any Argentinian citizen. From the hacker's posting, I sell all the data in the national identity document of any person in Argentina. This includes photo, name, surname, address, birth date, gender, processing number, type of ID, and security code from the back of the card. Shortly after, the Argentinian government confirmed the leak, but insisted that no data had been breached and that the VPN account used to access the database at the exact moment the tweet was posted has been shut down. This official statement was put to lie when reporters from the record, the cybersecurity site that reported the hack, contacted the individual who posted the advert who was able to provide them details about an arbitrary citizen of the reporter's choosing. When asked how the hacker got in, the reply was, careless employees, yes. Which pretty much confirms the most important rule in cybersecurity. Your breach will always come from the weakest point, which more often than not is the people to whom you give access. If you put together a large database of personal information accessible to tens of thousands of people across hundreds of departments, it may as well be public. Put another way, I refer to the first rule of keeping secrets, the one that even small children grasp when they first learn guile. The best way to keep something secret? Don't tell anyone. Also in security news, a highly popular NPM library known as UA Parser JS was compromised in a supply chain attack this week. The library is used by thousands of websites and site management software to extract data from a browser's user agent string, normally in order to track website visitors and sell them ads. According to Bleeping Computer, the developer's NPM account credentials were hijacked and used to upload three malicious versions of the library, which, when installed by automatic updaters, also installed a keylogger crypto mining server software and ran a script to extract any passwords or credentials stored on the device and upload them to the cloud. The attackers also set off a spam bomb on the developer, a type of email attack, which involves using bots to sign up someone's address to thousands of newsletters, free accounts, and advertising lists with the intent of DDoSing them with spam and confirmation messages. This kind of attack usually is employed with the intent of hiding something in the inbox. The attackers don't want the victim to see such as, say, an automated password change notification from NPM. Fortunately, in this case, the developer saw through the ruse and discovered the account hijack. The three malicious versions of ua-parser-js are 0.7.29, 0.8.0, and 1.0.0. New versions have been published with the malicious code removed. If you're a developer or site operator who may have downloaded one of these versions, the safest course of action is to consider these machines compromised and to change any passwords or credentials that may have been stored on those devices. For more technical details of the hack and how to detect it, see the article in the show notes. Yeah. And Apple makes the security rundown list this week for having silently fixed a zero-day vulnerability in iOS 1502, which could have let an attacker gain access to, quote, sensitive user information including Apple ID email, full name, authentication tokens, Wi-Fi details, analytics log, and full information on what apps are installed. The problem isn't so much that they fixed it, but that they did so without crediting the developer who found and reported the bug and without paying out a bug bounty. See, companies like Apple, Google, and Microsoft started to realize something a few years back. Testers are expensive and shipping bugs doesn't really seem to have a downside as long as the bug doesn't cause data loss or lawsuits. Sure, a UI bug might annoy people and increase the whining level on a forum somewhere nobody reads, but the simple fact is that end users seem to put up with software no matter how many bugs are in it. Security bugs are the outlier. These have to get fixed. So many companies have moved to a bug bounty program on the understanding that it's still cheaper to pay security researchers who find bugs than it is to hire testers. And so an independent community of developers and researchers now exists to test the software for security flaws. It's a symbiotic relationship, assuming the big companies hold up their side of the bargain. Which brings us back to this current bug. Between March and May of this year, developer Denis Tokarev found and reported to Apple several zero-day security vulnerabilities in iOS. In every case, he got Apple's boilerplate response of, Thank you for the report. We will credit you when we release the fix. Note that with other companies, this communication also starts a 60- to 90-day timer within which the company pledges to fix it. Apple's standard procedure is to provide no such time limit. In July, Apple released iOS 14.7 with a patch for one of the bugs with no credit to Tokorov or anyone else. In September, by, well, by now well outside of the 90-day window, Apple released iOS 15.0 with fixes for two other of Tokarov's bugs, again not crediting anyone. Hoping to at least get credit for one of the unfixed bugs, Tokarov then published the proof-of-concept code for all of his vulnerabilities with iOS 15.0.2. Apple has now fixed a fourth vulnerability again with no credit and no bounty. Once or even twice might be a mistake, but four times is officially a habit. Security researchers who make no mistake, comprise the front line of OS vendors, security defense these days often rely on bug bounties as part of their business model. But an even more valuable currency is recognition. Being named as the finder of a vulnerability is everything to these people, and Apple is denying that recognition. During this entire period, Tucker have received little more than boilerplate communication from Apple. While doing the story, Bleeping Computer received no response at all, which means we can only guess as to their motivation here. Is Apple trying to hide vulnerabilities, perhaps in a weak attempt to cling to the fiction that they don't have security bugs? Is there some hidden animosity between Apple and the security community? or Tokariv in particular? Or is it strictly a bean counter ploy to avoid paying out bug bounties? What I do know is that if Apple develops a reputation for stiffing researchers, researchers are gonna stop reporting bugs to Apple. Those bugs won't get found, won't get fixed, or worse, will get found and published immediately where hackers will pick them up, and ultimately it will be Apple users who pay. (laughs) From the, for every action, there is an equal and opposite government program department. Let's stay on security research for just one more moment. Back in the 1980s and 90s, there was a ridiculous phenomenon in the United States caused by the short-sightedness of bureaucrats clinging to the idiotic notion that they could, by government fiat, somehow control the flow of information around the world. The Arms Export Control Act of 1976 defines a U.S. munitions list of military technologies and items, such as bombs, flamethrowers, missile launchers, and the like, that may not be exported from the United States under penalty of, well, let's face it, the penalty of all laws is ultimately you're, that they'll take your property, lock you up, and or shoot you. One of the most important military technologies contributing to victory in World War II was being able to send coded messages that the enemy couldn't intercept, or if they intercepted the message, couldn't understand. Fast forward 40 years, and that means encryption. So in the 1980s, as computers were becoming both powerful enough thanks to new algorithms like PGP and available enough to put the technology into the hands of nearly anyone, the line was drawn between people who had legitimate reasons to want to encrypt things on their powerful computing devices and bureaucrats who still thought of mathematics as a military technology. There was even a period where the export of encryption was gated on key bit length, Netscape's early browser implementations of SSL had two editions, one for the U.S. only, which had full-length keys but could only be downloaded by a U.S. IP address, supposedly, and an international edition that anyone could use but had encryption key lengths capped depending on the algorithm at 128 bits or 40 bits or whatever the number was. In one of the earliest known instances of meme warfare, the full PGP code was printed on a t-shirt, turning that shirt into a military munition by the rules of the day. After a number of lawsuits, protests, and a total incapability to enforce the law, encryption was moved from the munitions list to the commercial control list operated by the Department of Commerce and used for such things as enforcing poverty in foreign countries via trade Embargo. By 2000, Commerce eventually dropped the key length requirement, which mostly made the issue go away. Although encryption is still on the Commerce Control list, it's not enforced, and so not a huge deal. By the way, countries on the banned list include Cuba, North Korea, Russia for oil and gas, Crimea, Iran, and Syria. In addition to those countries, you need a license from the State Department if you're going to have anything passing through any of the above, plus Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Cambodia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Laos, Mongolia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, or Vietnam. All of these countries are countries that the State Department has decreed thou shalt not have trade with. And apparently thou shalt not send encryption to. Okay. Well, that was 20 years ago. Now there's a new generation of activists running the agencies fresh out of college and ready to repeat all of the past's mistakes. The U.S. Commerce Department has now made an announcement to add, quote, hacking tools to their export control list, which, according to the extremely dense and difficult to read 65 page PDF that was published on the Federal Register last week, includes any software, quote, specifically designed or modified for the generation, command and control, or delivery of intrusion software. Intrusion software itself has been defined as software specifically designed or modified. To avoid detection by monitoring tools, which I got to say is a pretty broad definition. Is my ad blocker now a hacking tool? What about my VPN? Am I creating non-exportable munitions if I delete cookies from my browser? And what about development tools, which pretty much by definition are capable of making intrusion software, no matter what that is? Are we going to have to sign up with the state department in order to download a debugger? Obviously, this is hyperbole, but with the way crazy ideas seem to go from outrageous to policy within a few months in 2021, I think these are valid questions. The proposal bans the export to a country listed above if the exporter, reexporter, or transferer knows or has reason to know at the time of export, re-export or transfer in country including deemed exports and re-exports that the cybersecurity item will be used to affect the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of information or information systems without authorization by the owner, operator, or administrator of the information system. See what I mean? The proposal also defines favorable treatment cybersecurity users to whom these rules do not apply, including... U.S. subsidiaries, providers of banking and financial services, insurance companies, and health and medical institutions, including medical research. So I guess these are the people who paid off the right Congress critters? Of course, the ultimate issue is enforcement. Even in the 1990s, when the Internet was significantly smaller and less globally connected than it is today, it was impossible to prevent the movement of software between countries. And today, with thousands of vectors for global instantaneous communications, plus VPNs, the dark web, etc. The powers that be can't even stop piracy of copyrighted material, and they've been working on that for decades. U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo said that the new rule is designed to block malicious threat actors' access to hacking tools that could be used to target U.S. entities and threaten U.S. national security while also allowing for their legitimate purposes. Making the classic blunder made by all technologically illiterate authoritarians who assume that if you just restrict something hard enough, eventually people will stop wanting it and finding ways to get it anyway. For the sake of my own faith in the system, I have to assume that these people are not abject morons who have no concept of the history of their own department. But if that's true, then they know damn well this can't be enforced, so why make the rules? Well, possibly because, well, an overly broad, unenforceable regulation won't prevent a black hat script kitty from downloading a rootkit or a developer from downloading a debugger. It is one more thing that can be wielded after the fact to punish this administration's political enemies. Let's face it. Who needs to, quote, avoid detection by monitoring tools? Sure, there's going to be a Taliban here or there that's annoyed with the U.S. bombing and occupying their country for two decades. And sure, there's going to be a half dozen racist idiots in a bunker in bumwash East Dakota. But for every one of them, there's 10,000 people who simply want bodily autonomy in the face of medical coercion and 10,000 parents who don't want their children to be brainwashed into becoming anti-white racists. Both of these groups, by the way, have been labeled terrorists by the administration currently in charge of the Commerce Department. And that administration has already demonstrated with the protesters from January 6th locked up for nine months without a trial or lawyer or any daylight that due process isn't a concept they care too deeply about. But I digress. Suffice it to say, I don't think this new rule is workable. I also don't think it's a good idea. I do think it's going to significantly complicate certain legitimate uses of software as companies scramble to go back to creating an exportable and U.S.-only versions of their software. As one of my professors often used to say, those who fail history are doomed to repeat it, usually in summer school. Uh, uh, From the no-skin-off-my-wallet department, Google announced that starting January 1st, they are dropping their App Store tax for paid apps and in-app purchases from 30% to 15% for the first year. After the first year, the existing rate was already 15%. This magnanimous move on the part of the company comes at very little real cost to them, considering that only about 3% of Play Store developers charge for apps or use Google's in-app purchase system. The other 97% either use indirect monetization methods or are outright free. Of that 3%, most developers are well into their second year or later. So, the cost to Google for this move is very low, while the PR benefit is high. As we've discussed on this show before, Google's main App Store competitor, Apple, is fighting a multi front battle to justify the 30% tax that they charge on all revenues generated from iOS devices, whether being the store or purchases. This move by Google has just given Apple's opponents, most notably Epic, who recently suffered a court defeat based partly on the grounds that, hey, everybody's charging 30% some much needed ammunition for more details on that case. Go download angry tech news episode number two, where I analyze this ruling. I think I'm going to cut it here today. There's plenty more stories to cover and I assure you that you'll hear some of them, but this episode is already a day late owing to one of my servers, not powering back up after an outage caused by the fabled West coast bomb cyclone that everybody's freaking out about. Last week I started an experiment with the sweepers to determine if cat or no cat is better. And I've already heard quite a bit of feedback in both directions. We're going to continue that experiment, but at the same time, friend of the show John Fletcher was kind enough to remaster the cat sweepers for us. So they're not quite so jarring, or at least so the cats are quieter than the guitar riff. I continue to welcome your feedback just as much as I continue to be amazed that with all of the inflammatory things that I say somehow, the sweepers have shown to be the most controversial thing on this show. I would like to extend deep thanks to Sean McCune, Michael Wingett, Loretta Vandenberg, Curtis Peterson, and Gavin Thomas for being this episode's executive producers. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So if you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send whatever you think this show has been worth to you, whether it's $5, $25, or $500. That's it for me. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com stay angry stay angry stay angry I've better screwed up at least one